You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. take the promises of God and we say, oh God, help me to believe your promise. Help me to believe, Lord. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. You know, we're told in Jude that one of the ways in which to keep ourselves in that place of blessing, the blessings of God love, is building up ourselves in the most holy faith. In Jude 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, Have you found yourself asking the Lord to increase your faith? There is nothing wrong with this request. Even the disciples ask for this. In today's message, Pastor Dave will be sharing that faith is also a muscle. We can practically grow our faith through hearing the Word of God and putting it into practice. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Peter's Sermon Part 2. We are going to be looking at Peter's Sermon Part 2. So if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to be looking today in specifically chapter 2 in verses 22 to 35. That'll be Acts 2, 22 to 35. I'll read aloud if you would read along silently. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should die by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. For foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
Last week, we started looking at Peter's sermon. This is Peter's first sermon. And surely after the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the new believers in the upper room that day, remember it was the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up before the crowd and he began to explain to the crowd that had gathered just exactly what had happened. He, he was explaining to them what they witnessed happening or what they heard. It was important for Peter to stand up and explain this because the Lord had arranged an audience for Peter. He got their attention of the crowd by the loud noise. Remember the loud noise as of a rushing wind? And then he got their attention when they heard these Galileans, these ignorant country bumpkins speaking their own language. Many, many different languages were heard. And they all heard these languages and they recognized their very own language and they heard the wonders of God being spoken. So they were drawn into this curiosity, wondering what was happening here. They heard praises to their Lord in their own native languages and they were amazed and they were perplexed. They were marveled. This drew them even closer. This prepared their hearts for what the Lord was now going to say through Peter by the Holy Spirit. It prepared their hearts to receive what was happening that day. Remember, these were devout men. They had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, the Feast of Pentecost. They were celebrating the feast. They were in the temple. They were seeking God. They were doing all that the Lord had commanded them to do on that day. So they were already seeking God. And we know the scripture says, for those that seek God, they will find God. So they're seeking and their hearts are open. So Peter begins his sermon on that day and explains what happened. He responded to the question that they asked, whatever could this mean? In verse 12. He told them that what they were witnessing was indeed a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. The prophet Joel in Joel 2, 28 to 32, talked about the Lord would pour out his spirit upon all flesh in the last days. Peter pointed out to these curious seekers of God that they were witnessing this very event before their eyes. God himself was pouring out his spirit upon the flesh. Peter explained that this was the reason for the supernatural phenomenon that they had witnessed. This prophecy had now been fulfilled. In today's text, Peter, now being more confident than ever, and he's overflowing now with the Holy Spirit, moves into a much deeper, deeper meaning. He seizes an opportunity here to share the gospel message. He wants to share the gospel message. He's going to tell these men why all this happened. He told them what had happened. He explained to them exactly what had happened. And now he wanted to tell them why it happened the purpose for this happening. He's going to share with these men the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is the Christ? The Messiah. We know that as the gospel. We know that as the gospel message. Peter's now ready to share with them. In verse 22, Peter pleads again with the crowd to pay attention because he knows that what he's about to say is life-changing. Let me say that again. Peter knows what he's about to say is life-changing. The gospel changes lives. The gospel changes lives. Peter asks them to listen carefully. The writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, wrote this in Proverbs 23, 12. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Peter needs their complete attention to explain to them Jesus, using these scriptures as proof. What better way to convince someone of the truth than the book of truth, the Word of God? When someone wants to know what truth is, always point them to the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God is extremely important to us. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church of Rome, had this to say in chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? 
And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. A person cannot believe unless they hear. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. It is through the word of God that we come to know God. And knowing God, we come to believe and we come to trust in him. The word of God is essential for the development of our faith within our hearts. We need the word of God in our lives. So I've heard people say, oh Lord, help me to believe, just help me to believe. Can you imagine my surprise if I came home one afternoon and I came through the door and I said, honey, I've decided to take you out to dinner tonight. We're going to go out and get a nice steak. And my lovely Beatrice would say, oh, help me to believe you, David. Just help me to believe you. I would wonder what kind of character I am if she can't believe what I say. She really has no trust in what I might put forth. But many times we take the promises of God and we say, oh, God, help me to believe your promise. Help me to believe, Lord. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. You know, we're told in Jude that one of the ways in which to keep ourselves in that place of blessing, the blessings of God love, is building up ourselves in the most holy faith. In Jude 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So the way we build ourselves up in the most holy faith is through the Word. It's hard to trust somebody that you don't know. When a person comes up to me and says, I'm having the hardest time trusting God in this area, what they're, what, in this area, what they're really saying to me is, I don't know God very well. Because if you knew God really well, you would be trusting in Him for everything in your life. If you knew the promises that He's declared to us in His Word, you wouldn't have any trouble trusting in Him. Well, you might have some lapses, don't get me wrong, but there would be an overall trust in what He's doing. All his promises are yes and amen. And he works everything together for good. We know this. So we should be believing in his promises. How can you know God? You can know God through his word. Because in his word, he has revealed himself to us. So it's easy for Paul to say, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you want your faith increased, study the word of God. So Peter knows the value of the word of God. And he wants the attention of the men to be towards what the Lord is going to say to them. When we're in a study like this, your attention needs to be focused on what God is saying. Distractions need to be to a minimum so that we hear every single word, every single thing that is said by God to you. Because the same Holy Spirit that's dwelling in me now dwells in you, and he's going to declare these things to you if they are so or not. And then it becomes your job to be a Berean to take home everything that was said, take it back to the Word of God to see if it's true or not. That becomes your job. So we need to be attentive. Suppose today, as we're giving the gospel message, there's someone in the audience here, there's someone in the congregation here who is this far away from accepting Lord Jesus and going into eternal life. And we're preaching God's word here, and we're coming into a real important part of God's word, and they're hanging on it, and they feel their hearts start to quicken. And just about that time, there's a distraction of some sort, and they turn their head, and they miss that moment. That could have been the moment that brought them into the kingdom of God. That's how important the word of God is. That's how important the word of God should be. We should revere the Word of God as it is. It's the Word of God, the actual Word written down, penned by the Holy Spirit in man. It's God's Word, God's letter to us. Jesus 
knew the value of listening, knew the value of hearing the word of God. In the book of Revelation, he writes seven letters to seven churches. At the end of each letter, what does he say? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You need to hear the word of God. It enriches your faith and it builds you up. So now Peter is moving into the heart of his sermon, and the heart of his sermon is Jesus Christ. In the second part of verse 22, he sums up the life of Jesus. In verse 23, he speaks of the death of Jesus. And in verse 24, he speaks of Jesus' life, I mean, excuse me, speaks of Jesus' resurrection. In 30 seconds, Peter encompasses Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's some preaching. That's not bad. Wrap all this up. In these verses, Peter tells these men, these seekers of God, about the truth of Jesus of Nazareth. He tells them that indeed he had been raised from the dead and that the resurrection proves that this Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for, the one that we sang about today, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, they've been waiting for their God to come down. All the prophecies told so. The entire Bible is full of nothing but prophecies of that Jesus would come, and they were waiting for him. Peter is saying, he came. He was here. This is the one that the Scripture says. This is the one that was attested by God. Peter gives them four proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look at verses 22 and 24. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should die by it. The first proof Peter provides is the very person of Jesus Christ. The first thing Peter tells them is something that they already know. Jesus was a man. But here, Peter is clearly describing the incarnation, the incarnation of God, God coming to earth as a man. This is what we celebrate this time of the year. This is what we celebrate, God coming to earth. John puts it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father in John 1, 14. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. And later, we're told this exact same thing in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Matthew says, So all this might be done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Yes, Jesus was a man. Even his name tells us who he is. Peter tells us, men, that Jesus was a man attested by God to do miracles, signs, and wonders. He openly did these things. He didn't hide in the corner doing these miracles. He openly did signs and wonders, attesting who he was. And everyone that saw the miracles knew that the miracles were from God. Everyone that saw Jesus do these things said, these have to be from God. Everybody that heard him speak, everybody that seen has seen his life, everybody knew because they watched him intently. They couldn't refute what was happening. They couldn't discount the things that were going on. This was God. These were signs and miracles that were happening all over the place. They couldn't find any fault in him. Peter continues and says, this Jesus being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and have crucified, put to death. It was incredible that such a man as this, as Jesus, would be put to death. And when, you, when you're looking at verse 23, from a human point of view, the crucifixion appears to be a, a terrible crime. It appears to be a terrible crime. Look at the words. Delivered 
by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You know, as we celebrate Jesus' birth this time of the year, never let it be forgotten why he had to come. He came for a distinct purpose. That purpose was to go to the cross and to die, taking upon himself the entire sin of the world. He came to become our sacrifice. He came to do what we could not do ourselves. I read for you Isaiah 50, verse 7 today when we were in communion. It says, the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus set his face like a flint towards the cross. He had one purpose and one purpose only. Every action he took, everything he did led to the cross. Nothing happened that he did not know was going to happen and that he did not allow to happen. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 51 Luke says this, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. Set his face like a flint, looking straight at the cross, the purpose and the foreknowledge of God. When his time had come, he went to the cross. He despised all shame, and now he's seated at right hand of God the Father. When did all this occur? When did all this foreknowledge happen? Before the foundations of the world. Before the very foundations of the world itself, this was decided. The plan was for Jesus to come to earth as a man, to die for us, redeeming us, reconciling us with the Father. You know, it's interesting here that right before us now, we see the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Peter says to them, you crucified him. You, you guys crucified him, speaking to the Jews that were assembled there but it was a predeterminate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. So who's at fault here? Was it God's choice or man's responsibility? You know, that's a pretty difficult argument. You could argue about that a long time ago. All I know and all I'm saying is God is sovereign, but yet man has a responsibility. God's will is going to be worked out, but man is going to be held accountable. A great scholar, J.B. Phillips, said this pretty interesting thing. He said, if God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. Pretty interesting quote there. But just as verse 23 seems like a crucifixion was a terrible crime, we're reminded in verse 24 that it was indeed a wonderful victory because after the crucifixion comes the resurrection. After death comes life. And that was a wonderful victory. This was Jesus whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should die by it. The word translated pains here actually means birth pangs, suggesting that the tomb of Jesus Christ was actually a womb to the newborn Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ, if you can picture that. Death couldn't hold him. He defeated death. Why? Because God has raised him up from the dead, freeing him from death's agony, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. Now, just like now, Back in those days, news traveled pretty fast. News got around pretty well for not having papers and internet and Facebook and all that other stuff. News got around pretty fast. And most of the adults who were in Jerusalem right now, most of the people assembled, they knew too well about the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They knew all about it. They had heard the rumors. They had heard the official announcement that said that his followers had stolen his bodies, just as to make people think that he would keep his word about being raised from the dead. The official announcement that came out, oh, they stole the body, those guys, so you can't believe that. But Peter was telling the crowd 
that it was because Jesus was raised from the dead, the resurrection, this proves that he's the Messiah. This proves without a shadow of doubt that he was the Messiah. Peter is using Old Testament scripture to prove that Jesus was their Messiah. And he supports this argument by quoting two mysterious Psalms by David, who he calls a prophet. Both these Psalms can only be fulfilled by one person, the Christ, the Messiah. So the first proof of the resurrection was Jesus alive. The second proof of the resurrection was the prophecy of David. In verses 25 to 31, look at this. Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Peter says, let me freely speak to you that the patriarch David, that he is both buried and dead, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he, God, would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter quotes these verses that obviously could not apply to David because David was dead. David was buried in the city of David, in Jerusalem. David was buried with the rest of the kings. It could not apply to him. David was writing about the Messiah, that his soul would not remain in Hades. And Hades means realm of the dead. And his body would not remain in the grave. David was in the grave. David's in the grave even today. And I love it when you hear the thing, when you hear someone say like, like, like Frank will say here when he's worshiping, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. We know that. We know that for a fact. All the other tombs of all the other kings, all the people on David's throne are filled with their bodies, their rotting bones to this day. Jesus' tomb is empty. And Jesus is alive. David is still there. David could not have been speaking about himself. He must have been speaking about the Messiah. This is a well-known messianic verse. And if you talk to a Jewish person, they will realize this is speaking of their Messiah. However, we have the benefit of the New Testament. We know from Scripture that Jesus did descend into the earth and he set the captives free before ascending into heaven. In Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? That he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So David's talking about descending into Hades. Jesus descended and set the captives free, set the souls. All the saints of the Old Testament were set free by Jesus Christ. This proves, and can only prove, that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. You are sure. You've been listening to Pastor Dave on A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition! 
Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AsureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope.